I want to do is to publicly express my gratitude to God for last week at Green Valley Bible Camp. And as part of that, and by extension of that, I want to thank the elders for allowing me uh, to be a part of that, for allowing Karen and I to be gone. I want to thank those men who filled in from the pulpit. Your love and service is much appreciated by the Lord especially. And also want to thank those hardworking chaperones and counselors that spend a week down there encouraging me uh, so much. But most of all, our youth. I would like to take the next couple hours and explain every intricate little detail of every one of these youth and some of the spectacular things, the mature Christian things, the caring, compassionate things, the leadership things that they did. Um, you have a truly special group of young people here and their faithfulness and their love and their uh, ju just who they are and who you have raised them to be is incredible. They are a good representation of this congregation and of God um, as, as part of, of the body and so I'm grateful for that very much so. It is humbling and yet exciting to be able to say hi I'm Doug Dingley I'm from Shoto and uh, appreciate y'all for that. You might recall that before I left for camp we had started studying in John chapter 17 in the adult cl class and the question was posed before I left. You know, we often ask God for things, we pray to God for things, and uh, we express our thanksgiving, but we largely pray for things we want to see happen for us and for others. And so the question was raised in that class, so why did Jesus pray? Because Jesus could do anything he wanted. He could calm the sea, drive out demons, raise the dead. If he wanted something, he could speak it into existence. So why did Jesus pray? That was a question I posed, and then Joel kind of ran with it in his Wednesday night Devo, and I appreciated that the week before I left. But I said when I got back, I was going to start a sermon mini-series on prayer because, you see, prayer is so vastly much more than just simply asking God for stuff or to do stuff. Prayer is far more even than thanking God for what he has done, although the, both of those are, are vital and, and thanking God is a big, beautiful, essential, essential aspect of prayer. Jesus did that. that that's important. But prayer is so much more than that. You know, we kind of overlook prayer sometimes and think, well, you know, all you got to do is get up and talk. Um, hello. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than that. Prayer is essential time spent with God, growing closer to and getting to know God, strengthening our relationship to God and our fellowship with God. Just as the Bible, the Word of God, is God's essential, heartfelt, and vital communication to us, our time spent in prayer is our essential, heartfelt, and vital communication to God. Jesus spent long hours 
in prayer to his heavenly father. Even though Jesus could, could calm the seas with but a word and, and ask for you know, legions of angels if he wanted and, and all of those incredible things he could do, Jesus still spent long hours in prayer with his father. Jesus prayed for four big decisions. Jesus prayed during his worst temptations. Jesus prayed early in the morning. Jesus prayed not only in the evening, but sometimes all night long. Think about that. He prayed all night long. Wow. So I said that when I return from Green Valley, I was going to start a sermon mini, a sermon mini series on prayer, and that is today. All of us in our lives need and desperately want the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Is that fair to say? Not only in today's world, but in our own lives, in our own circles. There's a lot of heartbreak right now going on. There's a lot of devastating things happening, both locally and, and within our, our own circles, as well as in the world at large. We all want the, the peace of God, which can't be explained, which surpasses all understanding. But here's the thing. We know that's a Bible verse, right? Philippians 4. Go ahead and open to Philippians 4 if you would. But although all of us want that, have you ever noticed in that text specifically what precedes immediately or is the required prerequisite in order for us to experience and enjoy that peace that passes all understanding? You know what comes immediately before that that causes that peace that passes all understanding? prayer. Look at our text. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7. Proper prayer. Be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4 6. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer is the prerequisite for that peace. Putting it all in God's hands is the prerequisite for that peace. I'm reminded of James 5 and verse 16 that says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we'll talk a little bit more about that verse in tonight's lesson. But even though it says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, let's be honest. Probably at some time in your life, it may have seemed as if that your prayers weren't amounting to anything. We're all human and, and sometimes it might seem to us as if our prayers don't amount to much. Now, now we know better, we know better because we walk by faith and not by sight. We know better even when we don't see results. We know better, but still we can pray and pray and pray and pray and it seems like God's not hearing, God's not answering. But whenever you think of that, or whenever Satan tempts you to believe that, consider this. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just because God did not take that cup from him did not mean that God did not hear him. Is that right? Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says, God heard him. Always remember that when it seems like you still got to bear that cross or you still got to endure that cup. It's not because God doesn't hear us. 
We know better if we are in Christ. You know, I think sometimes, is it true that the way that you approach something can determine what, how you perceive it? Sure it is. Sure it is. I mean, <laughs> go to some of these little towns maybe, and if you approach some of these restaurants in the backside as opposed to the front side, you say, I ain't eating there. You know, one of those deals, right? It depends on the direction you're coming at it from. Well, I think the way we approach prayer before we ever begin to pray makes a lot of difference in the way we view the results. For example, how many of you gotten into a situation and you attack it and you do everything you can? And when you've done everything you can to fix the situation, have you ever heard, have you ever said or heard somebody else say, well, I guess all we can do now is pray? You ever heard that, right? Think about that statement. All we can do now is pray? What more could you have truly actually done that would have been more effective in the first place than to put it all in God's hands to begin with? All we can do now is pray? How about we start with prayer and put it in God's hands to begin with? I think we also tend to trivialize prayer at times, not through, not through desire to trivialize, it, it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Sometimes we don't give it the proper place or priority in our lives that it should have, and, and it's not by any willful desire to do so. It just gets, like I said, kind of lost and, and overlooked as, as being as important as it should be. I don't believe we are always fully cognizant of all of the powerful spiritual elements and intricacies of prayer or how best to appreciate and utilize this incredible privilege we've been given by God. Do you know that prayer is a privilege? For our prayers to be heard by God Almighty is a privilege that is only made possible by the blood of Christ. And God wants us to get the most out of our prayers that we possibly can. He intended it for it to work that way. And yet sometimes we don't know the power of what we have what we've been given by God. It's like, as I've said before, me and my phone. <laughs> me and my phone, there's still a lot of things about my phone. I have no idea what this thing will do. We pulled a, a camper down to Green Valley Bible Camp, and so when we went down to rent the camper, they said, well, your car's got a trailer hitch and everything, but you need a, a brake controller in the vehicle. They said, most pickup trucks come with them, but your car didn't. Of course it didn't. <laughs> so. They said, we, can, we got two options here. We can basically put a brake controller in your unit back there and rewire the car and put your switch under the dash, all that sort of thing. Or we can get, sell you this little device about this big that you stick in the socket in the back of your car and you control your trailer brakes through your cell phone. Really, I kid you not. Through my cell phone? Yeah, yeah, you can control your trailer brakes, you, your brake controller through your cell phones. Little app here, push the button, how much brake to apply, it's got 10 profiles, that, all 10 trailers. So this, really? Yeah, I get a little orange button with that app on my cell phone, if I press it, I can lock the trailer brakes up. That's amazing to me, some of you young kids, it's like, yeah, we knew that, okay, well, it's good for you, but an old guy like me, it's like, wow, I had no idea what this thing would do. And I don't think sometimes we fully understand the power and all the intricacies of, of, of this incredible gift we have been given of prayer by God the Father. We can see a similar concept clearly reflected in Luke 11.1, 1, which says, Now it came to pass, 
as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, when you think about it, that's a little bit maybe of, a, of, a, of an odd statement for the disciples to make. Teach us to pray? As John taught his disciples. We assume that the apostles were, you know, Jewish boys. We know they were Jewish, right? And we assume that as good Jewish boys that they probably grew up in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, most likely, they heard prayers. Like many young people growing up in the church today, they hear <laughs> prayers all of their lives. Surely these disciples had heard many prayers. But here's the thing, there's a lot more to real, genuine prayer than just learning by osmosis or mouthing the same words over and over and over. And so they say, Lord, teach us, teach us to pray. And so I ask, isn't it at least possible that genuine, heartfelt, effective, righteous, in-depth, reaching the throne of God prayer may be a little bit more serious and involved than we sometimes give it credit for or approach it with? Isn't that at least possible? I believe it is. You know, sometimes I think we can approach prayer with the same attitude as maybe we might be tempted to approach pro sports in this way. See a professional baseball player, for example, right? See him, you know, your favorite team, and here's your player up to bat, and the game's online. Strikes out three times. Goes one for five. And you say, I could do that. I could strike out three times and get one hit out of five times. But do you really and truly believe that in fact, you could hit a three inch sphere rocketing in at a velocity, at a velocity of approximately 100 miles an hour, traveling on an extremely elusive trajectory that some major league pitcher has spent his entire lifetime polishing, preparing, practicing and perfecting his delivery of with the only intention of making you miss and you think you could hit it five times out of five? Say, oh, I could do that. <laughs> Some of us have trouble hitting an eight to 10 mile an hour softball at Green Valley. I was in a batting cage once and turned to speed up to 45 miles an hour on a softball, which is a lot bigger. Yeah, when I was younger, it could swing faster. Nope, that didn't work so well. 100 miles an hour, three inches, really? But I think sometimes we can approach prayer with that same attitude, like, well, prayer's easy. It just, I'll just, all I can do is talk, say a few catchphrases, I'll have it made. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that I myself am guilty of, of something like that a number of years ago. We had the opportunity, when I first started preaching, to go to the New England lectureships just south of Boston. And we got there, and the next day, one of the speakers, it was like affirming the faith, and one of the speakers had canceled. I didn't know that. He couldn't make it in. But one of the members of the congregation I was serving at that time said, hey, the guy that's running this place wants to, wants to see you because, you know, you're the preacher and all that. Okay, I was a preacher at one of the attending congregations. I haven't been a preacher all that long, full time. I thought, well, maybe he wants me to lead a prayer, right? Maybe he wants me to lead singing. Maybe the song leader's got a sore throat. Who knows? And I thought, well, I can do that, right? I'll lead a prayer, lead singing. Come up to me and said, 
can you preach for us this afternoon? And I got all worked up, all nervous. Out of my mind nervous. I got to preach on four hours notice at a lectureship like affirming the faith, are you kidding? Now, here's the thing about that though that I want us to think about. When I thought that all he wanted me to do was just lead a prayer, or all he wanted me to do was just lead singing, just. It was okay, okay, hand left. But when he wanted me to preach the word of God, it's like, Ugh. why the difference? I want you to really think about that. Why the difference? Why do we do that? One is just as serious as the other. One is just as serious as the other. While men who preach the word of God present the very oracles of God to people whose souls are at stake, men who lead other Christians in prayer are leading the very hearts, minds, and souls of hurting human beings into the very presence and throne room of God Almighty. Is that right? That's serious. That's the real thing. That is why there are actually biblical requirements that need to be met by every man who would lead us in prayer, just the same as there are biblical requirements that must be met by every man who would serve us as an, lead us as an elder. Did you know that? Just as there are requirements for men to lead us as elders, there are requirements for men to lead us in prayer too. Biblical requirements, black and white. That's how serious this is. And we don't often think about that, but let me just give you a few of them. The man who is going to lead us in prayer must be a man who can lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. What does that mean? It means he must have a holy lifestyle. It doesn't mean he's perfect. Nobody's perfect but Jesus. But it does mean that he may be, must be able to lift up holy hands. He must be a man who's living righteously for God with all he's got. He must be a man who can lift it, can pray, one who is not given to wrath and doubting, one who is not blown about by, by every wind, but ask God without doubting. He's not double-minded and unstable, as James 1 says. But there's more requirements to that one. Another requirement for a man to pray, he must be a man whom, if he has a wife, loves respects and treats her as Jesus Christ demands he do in order that his prayers might not be hindered. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Peter even going on to say in verses 10 through 12 that a man who prays and expects his prayers to be heard must be a man who refrains his tongue from speaking evil his lips from speaking deceit, one who turns away from evil and does good, one who seeks peace and pursues it. Again, 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. Otherwise, his prayers will fall on deaf ears. And brethren, if a man is leading us in prayer to the throne room of God and his prayers are falling on deaf ears, that does not bode well for our prayers because just like driving a tractor trailer in the old days. Where that tractor goes, the trailer's gonna follow it, for better or for worse. The man who is leading us in prayer must meet those requirements 
because otherwise his prayers will not be heard and puts ours in jeopardy as well. We don't often think about that, but there are requirements. Proper, prepared, and biblical prayer. Prayer that carries us into the very heart and soul, presence, and throne room of Almighty God is a very serious, very humbling, very power-packed and peace-giving business. So, how's your prayer life? The next few sermons we are going to get into some of this in much greater depth and detail. The title for this sermon series is putting some pop in your prayer life. P-O-P is capitalized, it is an acronym, P period, O period, P period. Putting some pop in your prayer life, P-O-P, an acronym. We know what an acronym is. An acronym is like capital G period, R period, A period, C period, E period, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's an acronym. So we're going to take pop, putting some pop in your prayer life, and we're going to have like 20 pops. Pop number one, P-O-P number one is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. If we want to put some pop in our prayer life, number one, the priority of prayer. Jesus understood the priority of prayer. Before and even during some of the biggest, most important, most crucial and critical events of his entire life, where do we find Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ who could calm the sea, drive out demons, do whatever he wanted to do, where do we find Jesus? We find him deep in prayer to his heavenly father. That's where we find him. Did Jesus know before he came to earth who his disciples were going to be? Did he know? Sure he did. He was God in the flesh. Jesus knew who his apostles were going to be. Is that right? Sure he did. Just like he knew with Paul. Paul talks in Galatians 1 and verse 15 about how God set him apart from his mother's womb. God knew that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was going to become the Apostle Paul. God knew that, and Paul says so in Galatians 1.15. So, yeah, Jesus knew who he was going to choose. I mean, there's no other conclusion we can come to. The Bible doesn't come right out and say in the book of, you know, this, and Jesus knew exactly who he was going to choose. But he was God in the flesh. He knew. Just like he knew right down to the last detail what he was going to say on the cross. But anyway, knowing who those apostles were going to be whom he would select out of his disciples or the group of disciples, even knowing, do you know the night before he chose those 12 men that he prayed all night long? Did you know that? All night long he prayed about we believe those disciples because as soon as his prayer is over, he appoints the 12 apostles. Luke 6 and verse 12 says, he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. All night and he still had to work the next day. Don't miss that. 
He prayed all night long and he still had to work the next day. People say, well, you know, Sunday's my only day off and, you know, I'm not going to church. It's the only, it's the only day I have and I got to go back to work Monday or I'm not going to, you know, come to church on Sunday night because I got to work tomorrow and whatever. Or we say something along those lines. Jesus prayed all night long, still had to work the next day. Check this out. Luke 6. Turn there with me, would you please? Luke chapter 6. Verse 12, as I said, he went out to the mountain to pray, continued all night in prayer to God. And verse 13, when it was day, this is the next morning, Luke 6 and verse 13, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Because down through their names, as we know, and then we get to verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Prays all night, immediately gets done praying, selects these 12. So we assume that's what he was praying about. Doesn't say that, but we assume that based on his choosing them immediately thereafter. Comes down with them in the morning, been up all night praying, and here's this whole group of people there to hear him and be healed, as well as, verse 18, those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And what does it say? They were healed. Jesus had to work the next day. And Jesus worked all day. He healed them. The whole multitude sought to touch him. Power went out from him and healed them all. He lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and preached the Sermon on the Mount. So he heals them all from all over the place. Then he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. He's been up all night praying. How do you do that? Somebody say, well, how's that even possible? And, and of course, some people will seek to use, well, he was God. He could do anything. Listen, he was the son of man, as we learned at Green Valley Bible Camp. He was human. He was the son of God, yes, but he was human, too. So somebody might say, well, how could he ever have accomplished all of that the next day after being up all night? My question, and I think the better one, is this. How could he ever have accomplished all of that if he had not first sought the power of heaven in prayer? How could he have done all of that without first connecting to heaven in prayer and spending all that time hooking up, as it were, to the prayer, to the power of his Father in heaven. Another instance of Jesus understanding the priority of prayer, and remember, that's our first pop. It's seen in Matthew chapter 14. John the Baptist has been brutally murdered at the hands of Herod. Turn over there to Matthew 14. The priority of prayer. Matthew 14. Not only was this John the Baptist whom Herod had had brutally murdered? Not only was he the one who had baptized Jesus, not only was he the forerunner or the Elijah that was to come before Jesus, he was also a relative. He was a near kinsman of Jesus. He was a family member. And so, in verses 13 and following of Matthew 14, Jesus tries to find a little quiet time, tries to get away by him. His heart's broken over this loss. He tries to get away by himself to grieve. Find a little time. But neither the multitude or the disciples would have any of it. They knew what they needed and wanted, and they were going to get it. And so finally, because Jesus couldn't find some quiet time to grieve, pray, what does he do? Takes care of all their needs feeds them all, because that's who Jesus was. 
puts his own needs second and goes and serves and takes care of all of them. And we pick up in Matthew 14 at verse 22. What he's done after he's fed all of these people and the baskets have been picked up of the food, that evening, Jesus immediately, verse 22, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Remember, he'd been trying to find his time by himself and they'd have none of it. So he, he works all day with them. And when he'd sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Finally, finally, Jesus gets a few minutes to privately pray and grieve. When the evening came, he was alone there. Don't, don't miss this, this is a very important point. I wanna show you how important prayer is. I wanna show you the priority of prayer in this passage. Don't miss this. Jesus goes up at this point to pray and it's what? It's evening, right? Is that what it says? That's what it says, okay? But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Don't miss the time frame. Jesus is up on the hill mountain in the evening praying. He finally gets that time to pray. And his disciples are out here in this storm-tossed sea, and Jesus does not go to them until the fourth watch. Do you know when the fourth watch was? 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Jesus is on the mountain in the evening praying, and he doesn't go to them until the very wee hours of the morning. What does that tell you about the priority of prayer? Even though Jesus could take care of those disciples' problem, even though he could calm the sea, even though they desperately needed him, even though they were in a life and death situation, Jesus made prayer his priority. They labored at those oars for hours. Jesus could have fixed it like that. But Jesus taught priority, even when people needed him. He knew he needed to pray. Think about that. Prayer was such a priority to Jesus that sometimes people, even the closest of his own friends and family, were just simply going to have to wait. Jesus wasn't being mean, but Jesus knew where his strength was. Even when they were in the midst of their own storms, which he could have easily calmed, they still had to wait for hours because Jesus needed to pray. Think this is pretty important? Think there's a priority here? Think maybe there's a little more to this? We also see Jesus' understanding of the priority of prayer once again on display in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepared for his crucifixion with the prayer of John 17, which you're covering in the adult class. If we go a little further into that night, we see that an angel comes from heaven to strengthen Jesus in Luke 22, 39 through 44. Let's talk about the priority of prayer. Even after that angel comes to strengthen him, it says Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was so fervently praying, it was such a priority. He wouldn't stop. We know according to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, that before that prayer, he had told his disciples that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even to death. But you know something? We don't see that same Jesus after he goes to his father in prayer three times. When he arose, the, pic the picture we get from scripture is that after Jesus arose from that prayer, those three prayers, he was refreshed. 
He was at peace and ready to go through whatever he had to because it was God's will. We see this in Matthew 26, 46, when he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And that's one of those phrases I'd love to have been there to heard Jesus say, because in my mind, it's almost like, okay, Jesus prayed three times, take this cup, not my will, but thine. He knew that, that God, if God wanted that cup taken from him, he'd take it. He understood that he was gonna go do God's will. And, and to me, in that verse, Matthew 26, 46, Jesus saying, rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's like, oh, see, hey, hey, we're ready to do this. Here he comes. Hey, this is, this is the way it's going to work. Why the difference between my soul is sorrowful even to death and, and see, my betrayer is at hand. Let us go. Let's, let's go do this. What happened in between? Prayer, prayer, and prayer. Jesus understood the priority of prayer because he understood the power of prayer, which is later on Bob. You know, Jesus' understanding of the priority of prayer is connected with certain other events in the scriptures that, that we don't often think about as being prayer moments. It's easy to skip over some of these and not realize that these were moments that were all about prayer because they're kind of overshadowed by the other circumstances. For example, we're familiar with the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Jesus goes up on the mountain, transfigured before his disciples. You know the story, right? But did you know that Jesus' actual, original purpose for going up there was to pray before his crucifixion? Did you know that was his reason? The scripture doesn't say, and Jesus climbed up the mountain in order to be transfigured before his disciples. That's not what it says. The scriptures actually tell us that Jesus went up the mountain to pray. That was his purpose. He was transfigured while he's up there. Turn to me to Luke 9. Luke 9, verses 28 through 31. The Mount of Transfiguration was all about the Mount of Prayer first. Luke 9, verse 28. He needed strength. It says, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, Luke 9 and verse 28, that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. That was his purpose. And as he prayed, he was transfigured before. The transfiguration wasn't the point in his originally ascending up there with them. As he prayed, verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. And the story goes on. I'll give you another one. Most of us are very familiar with Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. We're very familiar. You know, if I asked you, well, what did the Spirit do? Well, you know what the Spirit did. The Spirit descended on him like a dove, right? And a voice came down out of heaven. We're, we're pretty familiar with the details of, of Jesus' baptism. But did you know that Jesus was in prayer during that process? Did you know that that process of his being baptized, that, that Jesus was praying? Turn with me to Luke 3. And look at verses 21 and 2. So many times Jesus is in prayer and we, we skip over it because it's overshadowed by other events taking place at the time. Luke 3, 21 and 2, look what it says. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and the voice came out of heaven. While he prayed, during his baptism, he was praying. 
For Jesus, prayer was an extremely deep priority. Look in Matthew chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 35 and 6. Mark 1, look at 35 and 6. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he didn't hit the snooze, he didn't wake up at daylight, the scripture is very clear, a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Again, we see this priority of prayer. Everybody's looking for Jesus. Everybody wants a little piece of his time, as the, as the, the line goes in the psalm. But his priority was prayer, because he wasn't going to be able to do all of those things that he did, perhaps, unless he first connected to the power of heaven, unless he prayed, unless he was completely there with God. And if Jesus needed to pray before he tried to take on everybody else's needs, what about you and me? You know something? And I don't mean this the bad way at all, but you know, sometimes even the best of us who serve others get burned out. Is that fair? You just get burned. Elders get burned out. Okay? Deacons and preachers, all of us, Bible class teachers, every Christian gets burnt out. If you pour enough out of yourself, there's nothing left for yourself. Is that fair? You do that in your families, right, sometimes? You just pour yourself out until there's nothing left. You got nothing left for you. If Jesus needed to pray before he took on everybody else's needs, how much more do you and I need to spend that time in prayer? And, and Jesus didn't pray just before meals or going before he went to sleep. He didn't pray just when he found the time or when he had a spare minute, well, I'll pray later. That's not what he did. He made time to pray because prayer was his priority. Whether it was early in the morning, late at night, while others were struggling or waiting for his help or even all night long, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed before important decisions, in anticipation of earthly temptations, or just simply to thank God for his blessings, Jesus certainly had plenty of pop. That is the priority of prayer in his prayer life, didn't he? Do we? Number two. We get the idea as we look at his priority of prayer that Jesus wasn't just having casual conversation with God. And that brings us to the second element of putting some pop in our prayer life, and that is number two, the passion of prayer. The passion of prayer. There's a study that I usually try to use whenever I'm doing marriage counseling. The title of that particular study is Making a Good Marriage Better. It includes a section which is entitled The Ten Commandments of a Christian Marriage. Number two of the Ten Commandments of a Christian Marriage, according to the people who put this together, is thou shalt communicate. Remember that. Thou shalt communicate. And in that section it says this. The conversation cannot be limited, speaking about husbands and wives, the conversation cannot be limited to trivia. 
you must open up about your anxieties, your dreams, and your frustrations. And brethren, I'm going to tell you, it's the same with prayer to God. It can't just be casual, trivial all the time. We must open up to God about our anxieties, our dreams, and our frustrations. It's not that he doesn't know them, but as we open up and give them to God, it shows our trust to him. It shows how much we rely on him. It strengthens us, actually, to give those all to him. The Family Service Association of America studied families that were in trouble for a number of years. You know what they found to be the dominant factor in families in trouble? 87% of them had problems communicating. 87% had problems in communicating. And I believe one of the dominant factors in Christians that always seem to be deeply troubled is very similar. That they have trouble with true, in-depth, healthy communication with God. Christians that are in trouble, I believe, often have a correspondingly lax or lackadaisical prayer life. They have trouble communicating with God. Biblical, God-honoring, life-altering, peace-empowering, and producing prayer is a little bit more involved than just an occasional, casual chat or little talk with Jesus. It is not just a trivial chat or a casual conversation. Now those are okay on occasion. They are. They are. We have, we have, sometimes we just chat with our friends, right? And God wants to be our friend as we talked a few weeks ago in the service. And, and sometimes with our parents we can just call the chat. Katie calls usually, did on her way home from work for 45 minutes. If she couldn't call anybody else, she'd call the house and say, well I just called the chat and it'd be these long, you know, empty spaces. We really didn't talk about anything. Katie just needs somebody to talk to so she didn't fall asleep driving home. She'd just call parents and chat. And it's okay to, to chat on occasion with our, with our Father in heaven because we are his children. But brethren, I'm here to tell you, if that's all prayer is to us, we got a problem. we got a problem. Listen, it can't just be a, a simple chat like that. It, it, it can't be, you know, you go into a store, right? You go into a store, get a cart full of stuff, you pull up to the register, and you can pretty much mimic the words, did you find everything okay? You know it's coming, right? It used to be, how are you, but they've kind of changed that in at least one major chain. Now it's, did you find everything okay? And the next person, it's, did you find everything okay? And the next person, they don't even look up. You put stuff on the counter, it's an automatic response. It's like pushing a button on a light switch. Did you find everything okay? Did you find everything okay? Did you find everything okay? It's just casual, fill the space, chatter. I don't think that some of those people that asked that really care if you found everything okay, because I think the last thing they're going to do if you say, well, no, I had trouble finding this, this, this. Can you come and help me? They're probably not going to. They're going to find somebody else to do it. But the point is, it's just filler. It's just chat. And brethren, what would you do if you had a friend? Friend calls you every day. Your kid calls you every day. He says, hi, how are you? Well, that's good. Have a good day. Click. Next day. Hi, how are you? You tell them, that's good, click. And they do this for about a week. Would you pick up the phone the next week? You'd probably get pretty tired, because you could mimic it, right? You could go, you know it's coming, right? Well, God doesn't want our prayers to just be canned, 
canned chat just for the sake of saying, oh, I prayed today, and the same prayer I said the last 30 days, but you know, I, I did. God wants our prayers to be meaningful. God wants us to pour out our heart and our soul. God wants us to trust him with everything. And prayer can't be just when the mood strikes or it's convenient or we want something. The Bible tells us we had to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. The Bible tells us we had to pray always with thanksgiving, Philippians 4.6. Prayer, prayer is, is not this casual chat. It's not something we do in a restaurant just so people will notice. It's not something that we just do before we eat to, 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 to put a little check mark in our spiritual checklist. It's not something that we open and close the worship service with just because we've always done it that way. It's not something we do to open and close the service just to give more men the chance to serve. It's none of those things. It's not casual. It's not trivial. Scripturally understood and prayer, practice prayer to God the Father is very serious, passionate, powerful, soul-searching, soul-bearing stuff, according to the word. Let me give you some examples. Turn to me to Psalm, Psalm 102. Let me show you how passionate this is. Let me show you how powerful are these pleas and petitions. Psalm 102. This ain't trivial, brethren. This ain't a canned prayer. This is passionate, serious, soul-searching stuff. Psalm 102, follow along with me, verse 1. A prayer of the afflicted mind says, when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. You ever been, you ever been overwhelmed? Then the man's footnote in Psalm 102 said, this is the situation here. Let's read down through some of this. Hear my prayer, O Lord. And let my cry come to you. Don't hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. For, for my days, they are consumed like, like smoke. And my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass. So that I forget to eat my bread. I can't even, I can't even focus on a meal I can't eat. I can't even think that this is what I should do is, is raise a piece of bread to my mouth. I'm so troubled. Because of the sound, verse 5, of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I'm wasting away. I'm not eating. I'm, I'm in this panic. Life is horrible. God, I'm like a pelican of the wilderness, an owl of the desert. I lie awake, and I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. I'm all alone, God. And I'm in the darkness, and I'm up here in this high place, this lonely place, this desolate place. God, I need you so much. My enemies, verse 8, reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. God, they're going to get me. I've eaten ashes like bread. I've, I've gone to the fireplace. I've gone to where we cook it, and I've, I've picked up the ashes, and I've eaten them like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. I'm crying so hard. My tears have fallen in my cup. God, because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens. I wither away like grass. You want to talk, you want to talk about passion? You want to talk about something serious going on? This is life and death intensity. This isn't just, oh, my days are consumed like smoke, bones burned up like a hearth, heart stricken with it, like everything's cool. This ain't what that is. This ain't like we sometimes pray before a meal. Look at me in Psalm 86. It's passionate. God, I'm coming apart and only you can hold me together, type passionate. Psalm 86, just the first four verses, check this out. 
a prayer of David. This is how David prayed. He said, bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life. I'm holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. It's like a drowning man out there saying, throw me a life jacket, Lord. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. This wasn't a two-minute prayer. He said, I, God, I'm crying to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Sounds like a song, don't it? For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That phrase occurs in a couple of other psalms where David is also pouring his heart out before God. You know why? Here's why. Because passionate, passionate prayer bears, stretches out, and lifts up before God the very souls of those people who are engaging in it. That's why. And David bore his soul. He stretched out his soul. He lifted up his life and his heart before God. That's why he will often say, unto you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Look with me at one more. Look in Psalm 143. Passionate prayer. Psalm 143, look at the first eight verses. Hey, guess who? David again. <laughs> you think David was a man of prayer? Do you think David was a man of prayer? Yeah. You think David was a man of passionate prayer? You know why? Because David heard a lot, that's why. And he understood who he was praying to. Psalm 143, 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In your faith, in your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness, don't enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. David said, I know I'm worthless, God. Don't look at me like for what I am, but look at me because of and through the lenses of who you are. Because if you look at me for who I am, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. He says, the enemy has persecuted my soul. Notice not just his flesh, but his soul, verse 3. He's crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. I don't believe David said, hey Lord, the enemy's persecuted me, you know, crushed my life to the ground, I'm like I'm dead, you know. In Jesus' name, amen. That's not what this is. He goes on in his passion to say, therefore, because of all of this, because of this crushing weight, this overwhelming weight, therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is in distress. Re remember the days of old? I meditate on all your works. I, I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, Lord, my spirit's failing. Don't hide your face from me, lest I go, be like those who go down to the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. For in you I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. For I what? Lift up my soul. There's some passion in that prayer. You want more pop in your prayer life? Then understand that serious prayer to your Father in heaven involves a confident and passionate expectation of a providential intervention. The reason that David poured out his heart and soul and bore it out and stretched it out and laid it out for God was because he expected God to respond to him. Is that fair? 
Don't pray if you don't expect an answer. And if you expect that God is going to answer your prayer, and he said he would, so you better, then pour it all out there and leave it there. One more time. Understand that serious prayer to your Father in heaven involves a confident and passionate expectation of a powerful and providential intervention. Just like when the Apostle Paul prays so many times in the New Testament, said, I expect God to answer this. Finally this morning, we see our pop number two, that is the passion of prayer. And even Jesus prayer life. And boy, if Jesus needed passion in his, we sure need it in ours. Turn to me to Hebrews chapter 5, the final text of this morning's lesson. The passion of prayer and the prayer of Jesus wasn't a trivial chat, wasn't some pointless conversation. Hebrews 5 and verse 7. We know from verses 5 and 6 that verse 7 is talking about Jesus, who, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. Jesus did not just simply pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Yeah, he taught his disciples to pray. Yeah, he did. But that isn't the only way Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed to God with vehement cries and tears, passionate, pouring it all out. Jesus did it crying. That's what it says. When he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries, crying out to God, and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And all of those life and death situations we can add in there for us to pray about with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save us from the crosses we bear. And he was heard. He was heard. Doesn't mean God gave him what he asked for because God's will was going to be done. But he was heard because of his godly fear. This is a true picture of the top priority of a passionate prayer life the likes of which we are all going to have to have if we intend to win this earthly war for our eternal souls. Don't close your Bibles as I say this, I'm not done yet. How much pop do you have in your prayer life? I hope you return tonight as we take a look at a few more, but for this morning I want you to notice right here where we're reading, continuing this sentence in Hebrews 5, look at verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned the cost of obedience. In verse 9, through that process it says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus learned what it costs to be obedient to God. And it was painful, and he cried out tears and cries, passionate prayer. And he was heard. 
But through that process, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And that simply means, as we all, most all of us here this morning know, when we obey the gospel to begin with, when we hear the word of God, we believe the word of God, we're willing to confess him as Lord, we're willing to repent and turn away from our sins, and we are willing to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the author of salvation for all who will obey him, will obey the gospel, will obey the teaching that says, now, why do you wait to rise and be baptized and have your sins washed away as Danny Stamps did on Thursday night? Then we have to live faithful. If you have never been baptized into Christ, he's waiting for you to obey him so that you can have eternal life. And maybe you've already done that and, and you're having a struggle staying faithful. Maybe there's not enough pop in your prayer life and, and you need us to pray that, that you'll have a greater prayer life with God and you'll find that peace that passes understanding that comes about as a result. Do you need the prayers of the church? If you need any of those things this morning, remember the Bible says the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. There are many righteous people in this congregation by virtue of the blood of Christ. They will pray for you and help you find whatever pop it is that you need this morning in your prayer life. I'll be glad to baptize you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins as we stand and sing.